I don't know who needs to hear this, but Love is Blind is a dumb TV show. Okay, so let's give you a bit of a background into how I decide what topics I pick for my podcasts. I'm watching some TSN game, and the broadcast is talking about Connor Bedard's sweepstakes, and they are looking at the potential rosters for the World Junior Championships. My mind snaps back to Brett Hull and how he was cut from Team Canada and so went to go play for the Team USA thanks to his dad's citizenship and then went on to have a phenomenal career and probably could have been useful to that team. And then I start thinking, okay, he played for St. Louis. I remember he played for Arizona at one point, which was kind of funny, but I couldn't figure out where he started. Then that got me to his Wikipedia page and his draft class and how he was picked 117th overall by the Calgary Flames. So then I go to his page on Wikipedia, I start scrolling around, and I see that he is a member of the 50 goal and 50 game club. Okay, cool. That has a Wikipedia link to it. Let's click on that. So I do. And then I go down the Wikipedia page, and I didn't even write an intro for this podcast. I'm just going to look at this Wikipedia page and kind of run you through what went through my head. Because I know two things off by heart. Maurice Richard was the first player to get 50 in 50. He scored that in the 1944-1945 season. I've done a couple podcasts where I look at earlier games in the NHL. And I know that players would score in bunches. They'd score huge amounts of goals. But this was the first time in 44-45 where anybody got 50 in 50. Joe Malone, though, back in the early days, he had 44 goals in a 20-game season in 1917-18. So I knew that there were some really great players who scored 50 and 50. So I start scrolling down the pitch. Mike Bossy got 50 and 50 in 80-81. Before my time, I don't really have any appreciation of what Bossy did. He didn't play hockey when I was a hockey fan. He's just one of those guys who was a historic figure. I know off by heart that Wayne Gretzky scored 50 in 39 games. And actually, that was his first 50 in 50 season. He did it two other times, where he scored 50 in 42 and 50 in 49. But it was kind of shocking to me that the first one he got, the 50 in 39, was the one that sets the record that still stands today. I assumed that Mario Lemieux had done it. He did in 1988-89, 50 in 46 games. And then I landed on Brett Hull, who of course did it twice. He did it 50 and 49 in 90-91, and then in 91-92, he scored 50 and 50. And then I'm thinking, okay, last year in the 2021-2022 season, people made a big deal about the fact that Matthews technically scored 50 in 50 games, but it was broken up by his suspensions and injuries and stuff like that. So he had 51 goals over games 18 to 67 it wasn't in that first 50 games and that's one of these things that kind of clicks is the fact that we've designed these fake arbitrary disqualifiers for what counts as 50 in 50 some players had near misses bobby hull of the blackhawks scored 50 in 52 in 1965 1966 charlie simmer had 50 and 51 in 1980-81. Bernie Nichols for the Kings had 50 and 51 during the 1988 and 89 season. And Mary Lemieux had another one where he scored 50 and 51 
in 87-88. He actually finished that season with 70 and 77 games. I wish we had the scoring that we did back then. It would be phenomenal to see Connor McDavid put up 200 points. It would blow up most fantasy hockey leagues and would probably ruin a bunch of goaltender contracts. And even on top of all these 50 in 50 games and 50 within a 50 game time frame, there's 50 goals in the players but not the team's 50 games. Yari Curry had 50 in 50 but it was the Oilers 53rd game during 80-45. Logilny had 50 in 46 but that was during the 53rd game of the 92-93 Buffalo Sabres season. Mary Lemieux did it twice in 92-93 and 95-96. Cam Neely also did it in 93-94. So we've, again, we've developed all these random arbitrary lines around the 50 and 50. And as I kept scrolling down this Wikipedia rabbit hole, one of these 50 goals in 50 games stuck out to me. There was a guy named Anders Hedberg. I'd never actually heard of him before. Now this is because of how old I am. It's not the fact that he wasn't a phenomenal NHL player, or a phenomenal WHA player, or a phenomenal international player. It's just that he played in a time frame where I wasn't born. But the reality is, if we look along the lines of what is a professional hockey league, Anders Hedberg became the first person to break Maurice Richard's record. He was the first person to beat the 50 in 50 mark and get underneath that 50 game marker. He was actually the person who professionally Wayne Gretzky had to beat with 50 goals in 39 games. What we don't realize is that Hedberg's record actually represents a much larger shift in the relationship between the WHA and the NHL. Hedberg's record-breaking season shows us how the WHA had come to meet the NHL. And Hedberg didn't come out of nowhere. This regular season record is actually a result of moves and changes in the world of hockey that happened three or four years before. So let's take a look. How did Hedberg set the record? How did Hedberg end up with the Winnipeg Jets? And how does a contract dispute over who's going to be the highest paid player in the NHL actually set up the chance for this record to be broken? Hi, I'm Travis Duncan. Don't forget to carry the two. This is Storytime Hockey. So, the story of Anders Hedberg starts well before him arriving in Winnipeg. In 1971, the city of Winnipeg was granted one of the founding WHA franchises. The original owner was Ben Hatskin. He made a name for himself in Winnipeg and gained wealth with his work selling cardboard boxes. I work way too hard for my money. In 1971, he and other 2B league executives, Dennis Murphy and Gary Davidson, aimed to make a big splash with free agent signings to add credibility to their team. Haskin had already been turned down an expansion team in the NHL though. Clarence Campbell, the commissioner, had told him he needed a 16,000 seat arena and a $7.2 million entry fee. Compare that to the Seattle Kraken and the Las Vegas Golden Knights, who came in at $1 billion and $650 million respectively. For Haskin, the WHA franchise was going to cost him $25,000. Along with Bill Hunter of the Western Hockey League and Don Regan, the league's general counsel, they came up with a list of players they wanted to target. 
Now, Gordie Howe had just retired, so they had to cross him off the list. He wasn't a free agent signing that they could target. Bobby Orr was playing in Boston, and it didn't really seem like he was going to go anywhere. Don't forget that Bobby Orr retired at the age of 31. He was a young player for the entirety of his career. He was always a viable target. In the end, the group settled on Bobby Hull. Hull was disgruntled because he wanted to be the highest paid player in the league. He likely deserved it too. He probably earned the title of best player. It was either him or Bobby Orr. Between the two of them, they could go one or two. He had won a cup in 1961 with the Hawks, but since then, the promise of championships had gone unfulfilled. These were the days before open source information on contracts. But the assumption was that Bobby Hull was earning $150,000 a year, and Orr was making $200,000. Quite quickly over the terms of his contract, the negotiations began to deteriorate with owner Arthur Wirtz. So Hatskin called Harvey Weinberg Hull's agent. When asked what it would take to get him to jump leagues, Hull made an outrageous proposition, $1 million. Hatskin wanted him to come to the league for about $250,000. He also offered a contract for $100,000 for any year after he retired that he was coaching or managing. Hatskin actually went around to the other owners, saying that they should all contribute to the $1 million bonus because it would be good for the league to have a player of Hull's caliber on one of their rosters. And it actually kind of worked. The belief was that on top of Winnipeg, Quebec, New England, and Edmonton were four teams to help pay into the bonus. On the other side of things, NHL owners were starting to be a little bit fearful that Bobby Hull might actually leave. Jack Kent Cook, owner of the Kings, as well as the NBA Lakers, had an inside track with the Wirtz family because the Wirtz family also owned the Chicago Bulls. He felt that the departure of Hull would be devastating to the NHL, and he proposed a trade. He wanted Bobby Hull to come play for the LA Kings, and in exchange, the Lakers would trade Will Chamberlain to the Bulls. Now, it's pretty clear that this trade probably never would have actually happened. I would imagine the leagues would intervene well before that. So it never really came about, but it showed how much power and presence Bobby Hull had. Him going to the WHA would legitimize this rival league. A few months later, Vic Grant, a reporter with the Winnipeg Tribune, received a call from Hatskin. They developed a relationship between the two of them as the league was developing, and Hatskin was straightforward. He said, we got him. Hull's agent Weinberg had told the Blackhawks that the Jets' offer was real, but they didn't really believe them. They thought it was a bluff. Eventually, the Wirtz family had to cave and meet Bobby Hull's demands, but it was too late. Within days, he was in Winnipeg, introduced to a crowd of people at Portage in Maine. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Well, everybody, NFL Sundays are only getting better. And so are the incredible offers at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to 100% boost with DraftKings 
stepped up same game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, player props, and point totals. Now, I'm not a huge football fan. I only know a little bit, but no, when in doubt, bet Philadelphia. With payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is my go-to when I'm betting on any sport and betting on the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code THPN and place a $5 pre-game Moneyline bet to get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL with the code THPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Please see the show notes for details. With this signing providing a sense of legitimacy to the WHA, they started to go after some players. The Chicago Cougars actually tried to sign Stan Makita, but he stayed at the Blackhawks. Pitt Martin, Jim Pappen, Dennis Hull, they all had offers, but they stayed in the NHL. So Hull kind of gave some legitimacy as far as contract offers from the WHA as a threat to the NHL, but because of his bonus, he also elevated the salary structure dramatically in both leagues. This also really damaged the relationship between Hull and the Blackhawks. It wasn't until many years later when Rocky Wirtz when Rocky Wirtz took over the team and John McDonough was team president that they ever thought of bringing Hull back into the organization. Hull's first season with the Winnipeg Jets led to a finals appearance in the Avco Cup against the underdog New England Whalers. The Whalers would prevail despite Winnipeg's phenomenal first season. The following year, though, their performance fell off. Not only did their performance fall off, the stature of the league took a huge hit. Hull was the only player that was really the only one that came over to the WHA. He wasn't competing against the best of the best. There was no other Jean Beliveau or Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito or Jacques Plante. And even the teams were struggling, not so much just on the ice, but off the ice. The New Jersey Knights played in an arena called the Cherry Hill Arena and was described as the worst facility in the WHA. Players had to get dressed in a hotel that was over two miles away. The ice surface had a bump in the middle. The Jets, they fell to fourth in the division and they lost in the first round of the playoffs to the Houston Arrows, which included a 10 to one loss in game one. So now the attention shifted to the Jets organization. They had signed Hull. They had to convince him to stay and convince him that there was value in the project that they were building. What reason did he have to continue a career in Winnipeg if they didn't present him with a chance to win? So fast forward a bit, and we're going to travel around the world a little bit too. There was this guy named Jerry Wilson, and he was studying orthopedics and physical education at a sports science institute in Stockholm in the early 70s. He had been a pretty phenomenal hockey talent of his own. By the age of 14, he was already being watched by the Canadians. He'd played three games in the NHL, but by the time he was 18, he had eight operations, and his hockey career was over. When he moved on to his studies, it included a stint as the head coach of the University of North Dakota and was a team doctor and club vice president for the Jets. But while studying in Sweden, he was asked to keep an eye on their top-level hockey, the Swedish Elite League. And he sent a message back to the Jets saying there was a player they should know about, this 22-year-old left winger named Anders Hedberg, who played for the national team and for Stockholm Jurgardens. Wilson was using the Swedish national team players for his work on the physiology of ice hockey players. 
things like biopsies and VO2 max tests. Another player out there was a guy named Ulf Nilsson, who played for AIK. Now, like I said, Wilson was a hockey player. He knew his hockey. He actually had a son named Kerry who would go on to have a very good NHL career. And more recently, Colin Wilson is his grandson, who last played in the NHL with the 1920 Colorado Avalanche. Now, during a game between Sweden and the Soviet national team in the 1974 World Championships, Valery Karlamov, who had widely been considered the fastest person in hockey, chased Hedberg, who had taken the puck behind his own net. Karlamov came below the goal line and from the left side. Hedberg took off the right. In a few strides, Hedberg was at the blue line, breaking the puck out of the zone. Karlamov was a full three strides behind him. So Wilson sent a message to Billy Robinson, the director of player personnel. Hedberg told Wilson that he would, in fact, be interested in coming overseas to play in the WHA, only if Nilsson came with him. Now, they had never actually played on a team before, but Hedberg advocated for him. He knew he was also a very good player. He said he was the smartest player in the league and a real playmaker. So Winnipeg already had Bobby Hull, one of the greatest goal scorers. They were going to add Nilsson, who Hedberg said was one of the greatest playmakers, and then Hedberg, who was one of the fastest players in the world. This is a good collection of players for a single forward line. They made it to Canada in the summer of 1974. Their first practice was with Hull, a player that also came over from Sweden named Lars-Erik Schoberg, a player named Doug Asmidsen, Nilsson, and Hedberg. Now, Bobby Hull wore sweatpants. It's a random detail, but it kind of gives you the idea that A, he was partly checked out, but B, you know, he played a long season, he just wanted to see what it was like. It also gives us a good idea of what practice was like in the summer. Players at this point, yeah, maybe they skated, maybe they went out and played, but it wasn't as hardcore and full tilt as we understand it is today. Hall, though, could not believe what he was seeing. He said, I never saw two kids come out of the corner like that. They were shot out of a cannon. We went down the ice and bing, 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 it was in the net. Not one time did we not put the puck in the back of the net. Now for Hedberg though, he had grown up playing left wing and that was kind of where Bobby Hall played. So during line rushes, he would always drift over in the Hall spot even though he'd been pushed over to the right hand side. Now these three Swedish players, Nilsson, Hedberg, and Soberg, coming into Winnipeg, this was new. European players had not really broken into the NHL yet. They hadn't fully broken into the WHA. The European invasion that we understand today just hadn't happened. But our teams today would be nothing without these players from these other countries, especially some of the more Nordic countries. So there's a bit of curiosity as if the Swedish players would be accepted by their Canadian teammates. The reality was, according to Vic Grant, a reporter for the Winnipeg Tribune, that the presence of these players and the high skill that they had they're going to extend the careers of some of these Canadian players. Hull was still a top-level player, but the Jets didn't have a lot of skill around them. Nilsson and Hedberg were going to fix that. And as the season drew near, the players integrated with the team well. Anders was always a little bit more aloof, as he's been described. He stayed to himself a bit. The kids around the rink would integrate with these Swedish players, and it was a big boost for Hull. His demeanor changed. He was back to having fun. So from there, the team took off. Their first year was 74-75, and Hedberg recorded 53 goals and 47 assists in 65 games. It was good for 7th in the league. Hull ended up in 2nd place, right behind Andre Lacroix, who played for the San Diego Mariners. Now, despite the high scoring numbers, the team finished outside of the playoffs. The line of Nelson, Hedberg, and Hull became known as the Hot Line, and they dominated when they were on the ice. Hull had 77 goals, a professional record at the time. Nelson had 94 assists. They were offensive dynamite. 
and Hedberg would win the Lou Kaplan Trophy for Rookie of the Year. Hull would bring home the Gary L. Davidson Award for MVP. Now that was only one year of hockey, but people had started to wonder, maybe it was a time to end the European experiment. Winnipeg GM Rudy Pilas thought maybe he needed to shift, maybe he needed to change the direction he was taking his team. Cooler heads prevailed though, and they kept the group together. They brought in Willie Lindgren, Matt Lind, Soberg was finally made captain, and he convinced the team to even drop personal performance bonuses and put that money towards team bonuses payable if they were in first or second in the division. So in 75-76, things finally clicked for the Jets. They were playing more of a team game. With as many Europeans as they had in the group, they actually took their training camp to Europe. They played two games against the Czech and the Finnish national team, and then returned back overseas. Now the Swedish players were starting to get some attention from the North American players. These European players were fast. They could skate. And these players just started to use their sticks to try and slow them down. Lots of high sticking, lots of slashing. Bernie McNeil actually put Perry Miller in the hospital after he'd gone after Veli Pekka, Tola. It got so bad that actually Bobby Hull sat out to protest the treatment of his teammates in a game against the Denver Spurs. Now, we've already kind of established that Bobby Hull's significance in hockey is a pretty big one. So when he did something, people paid attention. So much so that people outside of hockey noticed. CBC sent a reporter out to Winnipeg to interview Hull and learn about why he was protesting. Ontario Attorney General Roy McMurdy actually instructed police to charge the players. Not only were these games getting violent, but the state of the WHA was starting to impact games. Financial issues began to plague the league. On December 5th against the defending champ Arrows, one of the referees, Ron Asseltine, woke up and found out that the league had cancelled his life insurance policy on top of already having unpaid checks. And then during the game, Players began to yell, scream, elbow him, and take swings. They actually left the game halfway through. Bobby Hull had to go to the referee room and convince them to return to the ice surface just as a personal favor. The season went well, though. Hedberg reached the 50-goal mark. Hull had 53. The Jets finished 52-27-2 and were first place in the Canadian division. And they would walk through the playoffs. They'd sweep the Oilers in four games, including a 7-3 win and a 7-2 win. Then they played the Calgary Cowboys in the second round, won that series 4-1. And in the finals, they meet back up with the Arrows. Hull, Nilsson, and Hedberg would have 12 of the 23 goals. And they'd sweep the defending champions to win the Avco Cup, including a Game 4 9-1 victory on May 27, 1976. It was that playoff run that really set up the next year for Hedberg. And this is the big one, because in those playoffs, he had 13 goals in 13 games. Playoff scoring is always harder than regular season scoring in any league. This was the boost he needed. Now, 76 and 77 started out with a major problem for the league. In a preseason game against the Blues, on September 26, 1976, Bobby Hull fractured his wrist. He'd missed 46 games. And the story of how he injured his wrist is the worst part. Because Blues enforcer Bob Gassoff had actually been given two minutes for slashing Hull. After the penalty... He came back out of the penalty box, made a straight line for Hull, and slashed him a second time, fracturing his wrist. Some people actually believe this permanently impacted Hull's ability to take a slap shot. Now in December, halfway through the year, the Quebec Nordiques pulled out of playing in the Izvestia Hockey Tournament, a tournament based in Moscow in December. The Winnipeg Jets fulfilled that role because the Soviet team was threatening to pull out of their North American tour later that year. After they returned from Europe to the WHA, 
they were third place in their division. Now, prior to their trip overseas, they put up a 5-3 loss against Birmingham and returned to lose three straight games, 12-3 versus the Nordiques, 6-3 versus the Arrows, and 4-3 versus the San Diego Mariners. Then the injury bug hit hard. After the All-Star break, Bobby Hull cut a tendon above his right ankle in a collision with Nilsson. Dave Dunn had already gone down with a broken jaw. Lars Eric Skoberg had torn knee ligaments. At the same time, Bobby Crum had been very publicly critical of his players. He even spent one game in the press box as an informal suspension by management. It just wasn't an easy year in Winnipeg. Kent Runke came down with mono. Barry Long had a cracked shoulder. With all these injuries and all this extra ice time, this is where Hedberg really made his mark. The season had a lot of high-scoring games. Such was life in the WHA. The Jets won 11-3 versus the Oilers on October 29th. They had a tough result nine games into the year. They put up nine against the Fighting Saints a few nights later and eight against San Diego in late November. They would lose 12-3 on Boxing Day and put up 10 against the Calgary Cowboys on January 23rd. This was just the way of the WHA. And maybe it was the way of the 70s and 80s hockey. Teams would go on these streaks where they would play games with score like 3-2, and then go on a streak of games where they put up double-digit goals. From February 4th to 13th, the winning team in the Winnipeg Jets games scored 8, 6, 7, 6, 4, and 7 goals. In the next five games, the winning team scored 2, 4, 3, 4, and 3. They were consistent in spurts. Either it was a really long run of high scoring games or it was really closed down. Now Anders Hedberg was already having a really solid campaign. He was below a goal a game but he was getting there. In 40 games he had 37 goals. The chase was on. He scored twice against the Cincinnati Stingers on January 21st for goal 38 and 39 which included the overtime winner. In the next game on January 23rd he got a goal against the Calgary Cowboys bringing his total to 40. After this, things got tight real fast though. On the 25th of January, the Jets lost to Houston 5-2, he didn't record a point. On the 27th of January, they were shut out by the Birmingham Bulls 3-0. On the 29th of January, they lost 5-2, Hedberg was held pointless again. On the 30th, the Phoenix Roadrunners won 8-5, Hedberg at least had an assist. This run of 4 games without recording a goal really put Hedberg behind the charge for 50. He had 40 goals now. Now this is where we need to just hit pause and reevaluate some stat keeping in the WHA. As a defunct league, there isn't really the detail that there is with the NHL. Some records claim that Hedberg scored 50 goals in 47 games, and I believe that, especially in some videos where he firsthand recounts what happened. But it happens in a 49 game time frame. So my belief is that he only played 47 games, the team had played 49, he must have missed two somewhere. So we won't really talk about what game he scored which goals until we get to the end. But after this goalless run, he really went off. In Edmonton on February 1st, he put up five points including four goals past Jean-Louis Levasseur in an 11-1 win against their nearest rivals. The next game he put up an astonishing display against the San Diego Mariners where he scored four more goals and had two assists to reach a total of 48 goals in the 8-2 win with the Jets. He had overcome a strange season in Winnipeg, a mid-season trip to Europe, injuries to his captain and his linemates, a coach who had had one foot out the door with his contract coming to an end, and a long streak of not scoring goals. 
Side note for Bobby Crum, he would actually move to Detroit the next year in the NHL and win the Jack Adams Award. But Hedberg had the record within reach. On February 6, 1977, he would be playing the Calgary Cowboys. The Calgary team would jump out to a 2-0 lead off goals by Dave Criscow and Peter Driscoll. The Jets would get one back early in the second period from Katola and a second goal from Ron Ward to tie it. Hedberg would score his 49th from Tommy Bergman and Vili Katola just over halfway through the second. The Jets would score a fourth before the end of the period. With half the third period gone, Hedberg would enter the Cowboys zone and lose the puck briefly in his skates. In the time it took him to look down, kick it up to his stick and then refocus on the net, it gave Cowboys defender Paul Tarabeshe enough time to lower his body into a position to deliver a hip check as he skated backwards, while at the same time, his defense partner was continuing to skate backwards on the other side of Hedberg. The easiest comparable is the two defenders if they had actually closed down Mario Lemieux and his wonder goal against the North Stars. This time though, the defenders actually were able to close the gap, and they injured Hedberg. He went off for a bit, but he stayed in the game. At 11.21 of the third, he took a pass from Barry Lusek on the left-hand side of the rink as he entered the zone and took a hard, low wrist shot that went past Gary Bromley. Hedberg now had 50. Like I said, this happened in game 49 for the Winnipeg Jets, but I believe it's actually Hedberg's 47th game. Didn't really matter, he'd put another one in by the end of the night. He became the first player since Richard to complete the feat and first to do it in under 50 games. And that's the main record here. He's the first to do it in under 50. That's the hardest benchmark to break. Getting 50 goals in a season now is almost impossible. It happens, but not as frequently as we would like it. Doing it in under 50 games though, this was the first time anyone had ever done that. But of course, since this was the season of the Winnipeg Jets injury bug, that hit he had taken from those two defenders actually put him in a cast and out of the lineup for six weeks. He actually shows up on a talk show the next night, limping and needing help up the stairs because he's in a cast. The Jets would finish second place in their division behind the Arrows. They would defeat the San Diego Mariners in seven games in the first round. They would defeat the Arrows in the second round in six games. And then they met the Nordiques in the final. They would defeat the Nordiques 2-1 in Game 1, followed up by a 6-1 loss in Game 2. In Game 3, Hedberg found the back of the net 30 seconds into the third period to contribute to a 6-1 victory on May 18th. Game 4 in Winnipeg, Nordiques even the series with a 4-2 win, including a 4-point effort from Serge Bernier. Back in Quebec for Game 5, the Nordiques would rout the Jets 8-3. Returning to Winnipeg though on May 24th, the Jets were ready and willing to take their revenge. The first period saw 7 goals and the Jets came out ahead 4-3 after 20 minutes. And that was actually all the scoring the Nordiques would get. But the Jets, they didn't stop. They scored 12 goals that night, winning 12-3, sending it back to Quebec for a Game 7. Now it had been a long year for the Jets, and in many sources it's presented as, after this Game 6, they were just out of gas. It was Game 7 of the Avco Cup Finals. They needed to be there, they just weren't. They lost 8-2, and on May 26, 1977, the Nordiques would win the Avco Cup. Now, this is Hedberg's record. He's the first to have 50 goals in under 50 games. His record will always, though, have a slight asterisk on it. It happened in the WHA. Was that really that much of a weaker league? Was it a higher scoring league? Was it a higher scoring team? Whatever the qualifier is you want to put along Hedberg's record-breaking season, 
there are undeniable facts. He was the first player to get 50 goals in 50 games since Maurice Richard. He was the first player in the WHA or the NHL to score 50 in under 50 games. And you can't dispute the fact that Hedberg was a phenomenal talent. In 286 games, he had 236 goals, along with 222 assists, 458 points total. In the NHL, he had 397 points, including 172 goals, after playing 465 games with the New York Rangers. Hedberg was a phenomenal talent. But his 50 goals in under 50 games didn't happen in the NHL. There's some sort of drawback to his record because it wasn't in this league. But we can't look at it that way. No one else had done it. If no one else had done it, it didn't really matter which of the two professional leagues it happened in. Whether the league was stronger or not, Hedberg's legacy is of a phenomenal hockey player trailblazing the way for European players to come to North America and be successful. And not only was he successful, he actually set records. He broke barriers. He established new benchmarks. Hedberg led to an invasion of European hockey talent throughout the 80s and the 90s. And eventually we had to acknowledge the fact that top tier hockey players come from all over different places in the world. We can't even consider the achievements of some of the world's greatest players without their European counterparts. Who is Wayne Gretzky without Yari Curry? Who is Sidney Crosby without Evgeny Malkin? Who's Connor McDavid without Leon Dreisaitl? All of them owe some part of the fact that they're here and that they are working together within the same league thanks to the phenomenal season of 1976-77 and the achievement of Anders Hedberg. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, and I fold my laundry just like you do. I don't. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and rate this podcast wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. We are a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network, sponsored by DraftKings. Please play along with us. Use the promo code THPN when signing up. Please see the show notes for details. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next episode.